I was never worried about being on the wrong side of something because I could give a fuck. But your last name sounds like the noise it makes when I punch your mother in the twat. <laughs> I think you just That's quoted Imogen Heap on accident. She just admitted to millions of listeners that you don't wipe your ass after you take a shit. That's just <laughs> more lofty bomb-related goals. See, these are all clues. That's the training kicking in. They fucked that up, and they also didn't use a fucking neck bomb. I'm probably a little beyond my truth or dare playing age. Livius acts like the views on rape have changed. Nobody wants to hear about your dream. Was the newspaper gay? Rob's like, quit trying to make uppercunt happen. I was totally hooked on mouthwash. We saw live worms. Porn's a crowd pleaser. I don't even remember writing that line. That must be a future. <laughs> The future or past version of me that wrote that. That's just, again, that's a glimpse into the future of law enforcement. Trying to turn my dick into a wristwatch. So I have all those peanut receipts. Furbies came up. They're given the respect they deserve. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. In a second, I'm going to introduce our third reviewer for the evening. But first, I just want to say, Rob, how long have we been waiting on this? Oh, damn, I don't know the exact amount of time, but um, since like March of 2012, I think. It's probably about right. I think that, yeah, AWP in Chicago, we heard the first snippets um, of this that, that we came across. And now it's finally time, The Last Projector. It's two and a half years. It is. It's two and a half years. So who better to review this with us other than the author himself, David James Keaton? Welcome back, David. Hello. Hello again. Um, there are not a lot of writers we would ask to review their own books with us, but this time I, I need I need some guidance through the woods. <laughs> so I figured this might be a good way to go. You can be on and explain it all, all, all yourself. Is that what you would do in any circumstance, except if it was me, like to have somebody come on and explain the book? No, no, no. It seems like it seems like a cop out. It's, it's a little bit of a cop out. Plus, you're a hell of a lot of fun to have on. So. Well, I don't know if I can. I'm going to try to explain it to you. I'm going to try to lead you through the. What did you say? The woods. Yep. I'm going to try to lead you through the woods. Right. Rob right. got it all. Rob understood all of it, right? Oh, I yeah. had no doubt because Rob watches movies. I had no <laughs> doubt he'd be fine. My uh, there's a whole wall in my apartment that's just you know this big diorama of like little yarn reaching from one character name to another. <laughs> And, and on the flip side, every time you made a movie reference, I was like, I wonder if this is a real movie he's talking about. <laughs> oh, every God. fucking time. Oh, God. <laughs> and it was, I don't even know why you bothered to read it. You don't, you've never seen a movie in your life. It's, this review from Livius is going to be like fucking Nell with the, with the made-up language. <laughs> he makes a movie reference. <laughs> Livius can be like, Tay to the wind, Bathwater. I will tell you that that. Um, have you seen now? Do you get that reference? <laughs> no, I have no idea what you're talking That's about. That's what I'm saying. You're, you're talking about. That's what I, I'm saying. I do have about half hour planned out. where We're going to talk about the band Honeymoon Suite. <laughs> oh, see there, I got some references that you could figure see, out. The I've 80s that. music. That was all I've got. You're from the 80s. I am from the 80s. Wow. But um, <laughs> as uh, whenever we do have a guest host on, we'd like to put as much work on them as possible because basically we're lazy fucks. So, David, would you like to read the synopsis for The Last Projector? Oh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do your job for you. Hold on. Let me find the... Let me get the book here. He's pretending like we didn't already tell him this was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't think you were serious. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll try... Oh, should I do the movie voice? Of course. 
In this hysterical fever dream of a novel, meet an unhinged paramedic turned porn director uprooted from an ever-shifting 80s fantasy. Discover a crime that circles back through time to a far-reaching cover-up in the back of an ambulance. Reveal a manic tattoo obsession and how it conspires to ruin the integrity of a film and corrupt identity itself. Unravel the mysteries surrounding three generations of women and the one secret they share and follow two amateur terrorists whose unlikely love story rushes headlong towards a drive-in apocalypse. Well, that's not confusing at all. If I would have read that first. Yeah. I, um, I'd still be in the same boat. That's not really the plot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like the kind of plot that would get somebody to read the book. Well, and that's what synopses are for, I believe. Yeah, it does a decent job of pulling you in. Yep. It, it imitates what a, what a synopsis sounds like. <laughs> it's all big fraud. I mean, that's probably what? That's Maybe that's half the book. I mean, there's a lot. There's just so much. I was trying to explain to someone. I mean, it's 530 pages is what it's listed on Amazon as. And it's not like an enormous book. It's definitely not the biggest book I've read. But there's it's dense is the only word I could use. There's a lot of stuff that happens in those 530 pages. So, Who was asking you questions about it? Oh, uh, just in talking to people. I, who, what, who were you talking to? When uh, <laughs> specifically were you talking to? Who were you to? talking to? Who wanted to know? So this is the part where you... Who wanted to know? <laughs> David, was, David did say that he was going to interview the interviewers. So um, I, I do get a lot of people, when they find out I do a podcast, they always want to know what I'm reading. So... Um, I told him I'm reading this book called The Last Projector. Are these coworkers? Are these people on the bus? Are these coworkers? People, your your basketball team coworkers. Yep. Okay, so this is it's your job. <laughs> I've always wondered where you worked. Uh, I can't talk about that on the podcast. You've avoided that subject pretty deftly for many years. Yeah, three 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 plus years. I have never specifically mentioned where I work, but um, if anybody paid enough attention to it. There are clues. Yeah, Yeah, I know where you work. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) The interviewer becomes the interviewee. (laughs) I was ready for it. I'm ready for it. I'm going to give you really short, really lame answers. You bobbed and weaved. You stiff-armed, sent me right past you. Go ahead. So, yeah, so how exactly did you describe this book to your coworkers? Um, I said it's crazy. Once I tell people that it's a crazy book, they're like, all right, that's a good enough answer. Or they're like, well, I want to know more about this crazy book. And then I kind of give examples from the book. You know, like, this, this just, I just read this crazy scene and I kind of tell them what happened. They're like, wow, that is crazy. So. There's a lot of scenes that you would have heard before. And readings, and by reading Fish Bites Cup, did that like screw up your reading of it? Did it, it feel fractured and episodic? Well, that's the thing. Like, um, there's there's whole sections that you've read um, on on different episodes, uh, three or four different episodes of the podcast. So, when I got to them, there was some variations in the book uh, as opposed to what uh, happened in the reading, and um, there was times that I I actually because I'd you know, I was at the reading, then edited it for the podcast, and then, you know, subsequently, sometimes I just listen to old episodes, listen to it again. I got used to that one story, and when I read it in the book, it was different. So it was like, hey, wait a minute, what happened? Why did he change it? So that it's J. a little David bit. Osborne happened. I know. I was like, that fucking Osborne, he's ruining this whole book. <laughs> so then, oh. after that, 
after that, anything about the book that I didn't like, I was like, oh, that's probably what Osborne did to the book. <laughs> but you, that's I, I can see how that's you might think that but that's not really what happened I mean like I was talking to you earlier it the stuff I read this is it's fascinating the way that you guys are in a unique position as far as the way it was served up to you mm-hmm. like I don't know if you'll ever be able you'll never really be qualified to read and evaluate this book <laughs> <laughs> well, fuck. Because you, he tells us now. You've been hearing the ending for two years at least. So, <laughs> I mean, what's the what's the equivalent of hearing the ending for two years? You've seen the ending of this thing, and then it's like having a series of trailers. You've seen you've seen these trailers for years, and then you saw the thing, and then you said, "Well, wait, that's." The stuff in the trailer isn't there anymore, or and it's it's so much longer. I mean, it's going to be longer than the trailer, of course, but it's it skewed your your memory of it, <laughs> and it might it might have ruined it for you. I think in a way. Well, I mean, ruined it would make it sound like we didn't like the book. Well, it, you liked it as much as you possibly could in this being too close to the experiment. You're, you're getting back to, like, the Schrodinger's cat thing. We observed it, so it doesn't exist in two states at the same time, that type of thing. In a couple situations, you you were there for the readings, but then you also edited the reading, so you sat there and listened to it over and over again. So you probably memorized part of it accidentally. You wouldn't have had any choice. Then you read the collection of short <laughs> stories that has chapters from it, and then you read the book, and... It's just, I don't know if there's anybody who's had it given to you in such a backwards way. If there's, if there's been a book that you've read, and it's, it's the wrong way to read a book, I think. I, I, I'm not saying that you can't form an opinion on it, but it's going to be a unique opinion. So this brings up a kind of interesting question, though. So I know that we'd read, um, is it is Chasing Bubbles? Was that the actual name of the short Catching story? Bubble. Catching bubbles, and then oh, yeah. there was somewhere else, and I don't think it was in Fish Bites Cop. I read a short story that was the paramedics. That was just yep. a, some snippets of them in the ambulance. Yep. So these were these always part of the bigger project, and you pulled them out as short stories, or were there things that were incorporated? Which isn't actually the big question I was going to ask, but I guess this kind of sets it up. Well, both those two examples were always part of the project. Okay. Um, Catching Bubble was, uh, that was something that I gave to Dirty Noir. You guys remember mm-hmm. that short oh, yeah. thing? Mm-hmm. And that dude flaked out and vanished. Um, <laughs> he, uh, that was just something to, to give them. Um, and it was just kind of, it was just a conversation I yanked from the middle of it. Um, the paramedic stuff was always integral to the original idea because it was, the porn stuff is the newest stuff. The paramedic stuff was was the nucleus of it for the whole whole ride. So anything paramedic related, um, and uh, the only stuff that went in later was um, well, I wouldn't even say it went in later. There was a weird fusion of projects, but they had already been part of the one project, and they had been separated. And then, like, re-welded back together. So they kind of, uh, all those short stories were always part of the book. 
I guess is the short answer. So do you think then that, so based on, and again, I understand we're under extreme circumstances here, but do you think that authors putting out stuff from unpublished books as snippets then could hurt the experience? I think that it just makes the experience for you guys very similar to being the writer of the book itself, which means you're dangerously close to getting sick of the material, probably, (laughs) just like the person who wrote it would be starting to get sick of it, or um, you start to anticipate things that aren't there, or you start to rethink it or second-guess it, that's a position that the author is always in, and that's kind of the position you guys are in on this, because you were there for so many sections of it, and because you worked on it in your own way to put it on the podcast or something. I could see that. That's fair. But there is some stuff that you'll never get that you'll never get tired of. And I'm going to read a quote that uh, that I, I know that 30 years from now, if someone reads this to me or play plays the audio, I will fucking laugh again. And it is from the porn, but <laughs> you could probably even guess uh, what it's going to be. Porn's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> Ready? <clears throat> Professional until the end. Larry made the mistake of trying one more time to finish the shoot. Joe fuck was all business after the apology, so there was hope. Like most of the young bucks, no fluff were necessary, no crew turning their backs for a second, no sweet talking at all. Just sprawling like a toddler's arm finally finding the sleeve in a snowmobile suit. Mm-hmm. Yay! That's a crowd pleaser. It's a crowd pleaser. It's pornography with a with a, chi- a child metaphor. <laughs> yeah, but it's so precisely accurate that it's that's the funny part it's not even that you're throwing like the mention of a child in there it's like that's exactly that's the perfect analogy that would work out well that's something that didn't change for years that's the same that sentence is probably exactly the same good Um, we did promise (laughs) listeners an actual review so i think we should probably talk a little bit about the story um, Should I just save my questions for later? Then? <clears throat> yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. So totally we're done recording. Do you have a lot of questions? <laughs> I do. I have a lot of questions for you guys. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Good, good, good. All right, let's start off with one. Go ahead. Shoot one question, then we'll talk about this book. Well, okay. The, um, do you want the, one of the big questions? Because there are some big questions. You it's, pick. Rob's going to edit all this out. Yeah, anyway. it's your description. <laughs> <laughs> Your discretion. You do the one you think is the most appropriate to ask right now. Well, it deals with the ending. Do you want to do this? And if we can do it in order, maybe I'll talk about that later. I think that there's something strange going on with the ending. But again, specifically because of your experience with it. But I'd like to ask you guys about the movie references because we have another unique situation. We have we. It's kind of like we found. A, a wolf boy who's never seen movies before, mm-hmm. so we can put this in front of in front of Livius with the movie references. Does does this happen when there's so many movie references? Does it give the illusion that everything is a reference, and then so you stop looking for reason? Like, do you? Because I worry that if somebody didn't get all, all the movie references, they would think there are more than there are. And I don't think there's actually as many as some people are saying there is. And so then they might dismiss something as, well, that was confused. That was weird. That must be a movie reference. 
and then they don't look for deeper meaning because of their that lack of their cinema education. You are correct. Okay. <laughs> I know that's a really short answer, but yes, because there are numerous movie references or things that happen in movies that I did not see. Um, and was not familiar with, then I did assume when they, and I'm assuming that I assume when there were other things that I didn't get that they were movie references, they may have been, I, I, I don't know. There's way less movie references than at least one other person thought there were, and they also had that, you know, sad childhood where they didn't see any movies. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, but here's the thing. I saw a lot of movies from that time period. I just don't think they were the same movies. So, but I will say that I have added to my list of things to see, are, are you ready to be sick to your stomach? The oh, movie no. The Thing. I am now going to watch The Thing after reading The Last Projector. That's, she just admitted to millions of listeners that you don't wipe your ass after you take a shit. That's just, <laughs> that, that, I'm sure that's exactly how that works. If anybody else has never listened or seen the movie The Thing. Don't tell, don't tell people you haven't seen The Thing. Don't. No. No. But I did see E.T., and um, I think that was... I also haven't seen Ghostbusters, but I think you only mentioned it twice oh, in passing. Yeah. Well, the E.T. thing, all that stuff I said about there not being movie references that you needed to rely on to understand anything, I take all that back when it comes to the thing. <laughs> it's sort of, it required that you see the thing to get a lot of other <laughs> tonal shifts and... And and to enjoy the celebration of the ending, you have to have seen it, and the dog stuff, and I don't know. Well, okay. I never saw the thing. You've seen the thing. Never saw it. I mean, there's. (laughs) I just kind of want to minimize the reference fest that I think some people think it is because it really isn't, and it. um, And if there is a reference, it might be a reference to a movie, but it might be in a way that is meaningless as far as is understanding anything. Like, do you guys remember the part in, the, in it about uh, there's a dream someone has about a child with a rubber ball bouncing around the mm-hmm. ribcage? In the ribcage, yep. yeah, yeah. Did you think that that was a movie reference? Livius? No. Okay. Um, well, there, didn't. That one was. But it was <laughs> only because it was a dream I had about The Omen. If you guys ever saw the movie The Omen... Yes! Nope. Sorry, you're really excited when you ask, and I can say do yes. You, okay, do you remember when they dug up, they wanted to find the mother of Damien, and they dig it up, and there's a skeleton of a dog. I'm like, his mother was a jackal. And that's, yes, I do remember that. That convinces everyone that he's, he's the devil. Um, so that freaked me out when I was a kid, and I had a dream about it, except in the dream, there, there was a dog, and there was a rib cage, and it had all these rubber balls bouncing around in it. So that was only, like... That was a reference, but it was only to benefit myself. So that, even when there is references in there, they're not they're not required to to get the reference. You don't need it. I guess is what I'm saying. If um, this is uh, for you as the writer and for listeners, I didn't feel that the number of movie references or things maybe I thought were movie references really took away from the story. I I did think that, you know what, maybe I would um, appreciate this more, but I didn't think it was enough. There was another book that we read a while back that had a lot of movie references. And at one point I'd actually said, I wish there were less movie references because I really feel it detracts from the story. And I didn't think that at all during this. Okay. Um, I was just curious. I started to worry because I heard somebody talking about that, and I thought, I think that they're thinking that that they're dismissing other weird things as, oh, that must be a reference. And, it, and that, I think that 
makes the uh, shallow read if you just assume there's a lot of references flying when there isn't. So, like, I feel like I might have shot myself in the foot by, by talking about too many fucking movies, is what I'm saying. Well, and he, he, all right, so here's, here's what I was talking to Livius a little bit about this before uh, uh, we got on the call with you, David, is, um, and this ties in greatly with you saying that our reading experience is unique because we're more on the writer's side than the reader's side from having experienced so much of it. Is definitely that, um, in this case. What's that? I said definitely in this case, yeah. <laughs> um, for me, on top of the fact that um, there's a lot of stuff going on, and you you had took some liberties with um, time and the continuity of time. <laughs> um, so keeping the story, um, at least in my mind, connected and linear was, was the first challenge. The second challenge was trying, because I know you, I wanted to see, like, I wanted to make sure that I caught references, if I could, to music and TV and, and movies, mostly movies, I guess. So there was that, but then there was also, like, I wanted to see if anything in the book was something that we had talked about or I had heard you talk about somewhere else before. So it was like, in addition to following the, the narrative, I also was kind of looking out for Easter eggs. So it was a little bit more challenging, yeah, than, than like a typical book would be. I probably thought well, more cool. about it than I needed to. Well, that kind of, maybe that balanced it out a little bit, like the, the negatives of being so close to the project. And then um, there's also... the the uh the payoff of of uh inside jokes and shit mm -hmm. and, um, <laughs> like helping trying to find help, trying to find the the dog the, of the neighbor <laughs> right did you find him <laughs> garbage dog garbage dog's in there garbage dog wait garbage dog um damn it garbage dog shows up outside of the the scenes where you're looking for him i'm sorry where um, where jack's looking well, for him well, yeah, there's the, I thought that's what you want. There's definitely the scene in there where I'm looking for that stupid dog. <laughs> um, that's pretty much word for word, that scene. So you probably found that. Yep. But there's also, you know, the just like the people are each other, the dogs are each other. Um, and there's, <laughs> right. there's dogs upon dogs. It's like, um, do you guys ever see the, A Mouse and His Child, that cartoon from the 80s? It was... It was one of those cartoons that kind of went up against the Disney cartoons. Um, and it's about, uh, it's like a wind-up toy mouse, and it has a, a, a baby mouse attached to it. And it, it's just like destined to, you wind it up and it dances in the window of a toy store. But then it loses its key or whatever, and it goes on adventures. But there's this really profound thing that it finds. It finds um, a can of dog food. And they, all these people, all these other creatures, all these other like junkyard creatures around it keep talking about the infinite dog. And they don't know what that is, this infinite dog. And it's the corner of the dog food label um, is peeled back. And because the original artwork on the dog food label was a dog holding a can of dog food, and then on that label is a dog holding a can of dog food, get it? So it goes on forever. Mm, yep, yep. Just like yep. if you have a mirror behind you and in front of you. Um, and so they want these junkyard creatures keep looking closer and closer and see how many where's that final dog in the image and if when they look close enough there's this tiny peeling of the label where it's silver underneath and of course they can see themselves and that's the big metaphor but talk about a mind blower for a kid's cartoon that's some heavy <laughs> that's pretty shit. deep yeah 
And that has a lot to do with the dogs in this book. I don't even know. Did I, did I mention Mouse and His Child in the book? I forget. No, I probably no. did. I don't believe so. Okay. But it's it's in there in spirit, the infinite dogs. Um, <laughs> the Or I should say, not the, they call it the last visible dog, not the infinite dogs. It's the last visible dog is my neighbor's dog and is every dog I've ever known. And I'm, <laughs> no, I'm not a big fan of dogs. So... Well, I'm glad so that many they didn't make a lot of appearances in this book. <laughs> but I am, you know, in a, just as I'm not a big fan of people, you know what I mean? They're they're too they're so people like it's tough to it's tough to love them. But um, anyway, that's the dog stuff. <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk more about dogs. That's a dog. So, this book opens on one of the protagonists, um, Larry, who is a. Uh, the beginning guy's pretty much on his way to work, right? He's kind of yep. <laughs> and uh, Larry has some kind of um, I don't know quirks, and one of them involves mouthwash, lots and lots of mouthwash. Yes. So this book starts off a little weird, where he's spitting mouthwash out the window of his car, and he's been doing this for a while, and it uh, it offends somebody, uh, which involves a, a physical altercation. So it kind of starts off already a little weird and chaotic. So you, I think you get a good semblance of where this book is going. Um, from the opening. That that opening, just if I could jump in real quick, that caused the most editorial insanity. I didn't realize how inconsistent the action was in the opening. Um, And that's one thing that I would say Osborne and I spent the most time on was figuring out exactly who was spitting where and who was crossing paths because I... I think I rewrote it and then added some. I don't know what I did, but the original version has uh, a lot of spitting and a lot of creating a lot of, uh, you know, nemeses. <laughs> and it was supposed to be this kind of intersection of people that started the book, which it is now. But it, I don't know what was going on, but that very innocuous opening of just some people crossing paths. Uh, was a disaster in the first draft. Um, anyway, I just hearing about it right now just gives me chills because I think I spent two weeks on that opening to fix it. Crazy. Uh, part of the altercation, here's a quote. I'm throwing in quotes throughout because I have 98 notes that I made of this 530-page book, so <laughs> I, got, I can't wait for quotes. But... Uh, uh, <laughs> He gets punched by a dude while he's like, you know, at an intersection. And um, I like this quote. That's when he saw the black tape curling into the ashtray like a submissive puppy's tail and realized that the red bastard had actually hit Larry so hard it had somehow made his stereo choke on his brand new cassette, The Cult's Sonic Temple, his recently recently anointed unofficial soundtrack to morning commutes. Um, I was totally hooked on mouthwash. Uh, when I was younger, so I can completely identify with all the, the mouthwash-related uh, parts of the book, by the way, because there was other stuff later on where Billy, another character, gets in a big mouthwash habit. Yeah, it's sort of, uh, he passed that on to him by spitting on him. <laughs> that was like a trans, almost like a, a disease, like he, he gave him a cold, but it was the uh, hooked on doing mouthwash cold. He passed the torch. It's a good time to talk about Billy and uh, his female companion throughout the book, Bully. Um, Billy's just a guy who kind of falls for a girl, and uh, <laughs> and they're both a little crazy. 
and uh, they are the the two, um, I believe, it was terrorists, right? Amateur terrorists that were mentioned in the synopsis. That's yeah, that's what we thought of them as. But uh, I was reading that um, Lit Reactor review, and uh, Keith Rousen called her uh, one of those manic pixie dream girls. Uh, well, I hadn't even considered that, but I guess she is one of those catalysts that comes into some, you know, kind of dull person's life, and she's full of ideas. And, you know what I mean? I didn't realize she was one of those tropes, but I think she kind of is. Yeah, I did I'd not say read. She yeah, I didn't read any reviews, but yes, absolutely. I, I I thought of her that way throughout throughout the book. So uh, Billy, in his uh, quest to impress her and uh, hopefully get laid at some point, I'm assuming, uh, <laughs> winds up concocting all these weird schemes, and one of them is to follow a police officer around, and, and eventually they kind of develop the the idea to kidnap his dog. Yes. Which, does that tie into or, or take from the, the one story from Fish Bites Cop? The, um, it's got a really long title, I can't remember. Uh, doing any, everything but actually doing it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that was uh, part of that. It was expanded on, um, it was pulled from the book and then put back in the book and changed a bit. But, uh, that's it, yeah, and that's based on an actual incident. All that talk of the the guy, the police officer shooting the kid's hand, yep. that all happened south side of Pittsburgh. All very true. I think we talked about this in the last podcast. So that's I'm glad that's still in there. Um, I'm glad that uh, any t- anytime there's a chance to talk about that fucker, Paul Abel is his name, the cop who did that. Uh, he's a real piece of shit, and um, I should have dedicated the book to him, but. <laughs> that's who uh that's that's what that incident's based on um following around and i've followed a few cops in my day because it's that's why the title of that now it's the title of the chapter or um it's the title of one of the subsections doing everything but actually doing it so you can you know you can fantasize about doing all these things but half the battle is just follow people around you know you ever see the movie following yes very similar you know something will occur follow somebody long enough and um that's exactly what happens they find that uh there's a lot to there's a lot to get angry about if you just pay attention to anybody and um and that's kind of what their relationship blossoms around is like they 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 find a mutual they they identify with each other over the tragic loss of some pets um at the hands of of authority figures so um, that kind of ignites their their passion for following this one police officer. The whole hatching the crazy scheme to to kidnap his dog, kind of as like payback almost, right? And then like some other <laughs> more lofty bomb related goals in, in the toward the end of the book as well. <laughs> right, and that uh, do you guys remember the neck bomb incident that happened in <laughs> Pennsylvania? Yes. So that that's another one of those weird things where um, that's one of the additions to the book that was kind of shoehorned in there a little bit, where they are already up to a bunch of shenanigans anyway. But I had tried writing this novella about, it was called um, uh, Neck Bomb, or it was, it was Neck Bomb or Pizza Party, one of the two. And it was based on that actual incident 
where the, the pizza guy was kidnapped and forced to wear the bomb. And then they put out that fucking movie. I got scooped. 30 minutes 30 or seconds, less? 30 minutes or less, yeah. And uh, I didn't even notice that that movie was about the same topic, but everybody else who had read that novella did because I was writing it when I was still at Pitt. And I wrote it for, um, we had a novella class. And now we were all writing novellas, and that was mine, was this neck bomb story. And uh, so people started flooding me with emails. They're like, hey, asshole, look, <laughs> they made a movie out of it already. And I was like, fuck. And then I thought, well, it's, it was lo- kind of the same. It was two people doing it, you know, up to these shenanigans, and it fit back in the book. It, it, um, it made sense to go back into it, and that way I didn't have to, you know, pout about it. it I think it gave, it, it fit too perfect as if it was always supposed to be in there because there's a bad cop situation. There's, um, there had to be a collar situation with the dog and to have something around its neck. And it was just all, it, it was all to take a time out to write a novella while I was writing that book was a mistake anyway. It was going to be just this uh, um, extra tangent of the book and so anyway it went back in there so all that neck bomb shit um all that heavily researched neck bomb shit that's from the novella <laughs> all the the tapes and the names and the um all that stuff was um from the actual case a very just case that's so strange that it's hard people don't still don't believe it I'm going to take Rob's lead and read um, a quote from the section where this actually happens in in the book. Uh, Let's see. Um, So this is after the the pizza driver is found and cops are surrounding him kind of as a setup and (laughs) pizza spilled all over the road. Then just like the seasoned sleuth they'd hoped he was, Bigby began to study the two pizzas spilling out of their boxes, (laughs) hanging grotesquely out of the red bag. He sniffed that road pizza like it was the answer to everything. That's the training kicking in, Billy giggled. Love that. <laughs> the training kicking in. <laughs> he sniffed that road pizza like it was the answer to everything. That is excellent stuff. Uh, one thing I want to say about that movie, 30 Minutes or Less, the way where that movie really failed was in the fact that it was way more than 30 minutes long. Um, I never saw it, but like... You have to build it around the premise that it's going to take place in 30 minutes. Of course, yeah. They, they fucked that up, and they also didn't use a fucking neck bomb. That's the, what makes <laughs> the real-life story so bizarre. Yep. Is, and so uh, just disturbing. So uh, it never should have been um, a comedy anyway. I mean, it would, have, it would be a comedy in its own dark way just by telling exactly what happened. And the, the stuff that's in this book tells a lot of it exactly how it happened so and it's it doesn't come across as uh it it doesn't seem out of place from the heightened reality of this book that's how strange that incident was in erie pennsylvania oh and one thing i was trying to remember the other thing i was going to say and i just remembered it was um I like how you didn't leave it just at that with the pizza. Like there was, like later on, someone's sniffing around uh, Officer Big B's place, and he's got. Um, I think it's like all the all the pizza menus for all the pizza places in a twenty-five mile radius, like tacked up on a wall in his house or something. Yeah, and the and he's got um, a weaponized umbrella, all that <laughs> stuff, and a cane. 
All yep. that stuff yeah. was found on the people that were involved in that original incident. If you the read the plastic sword or something too. Yeah, all that shit that they were into some weird shit. That's messed I don't, up. I don't know. I have a weaponized umbrella. Is that weird? <laughs> there was some weaponized umbrella talk at Nawarcon. That's in uh, Rob Hart's book. It's coming out. Yeah. I guess they're coming back. That's that a, yeah, Gotham show. Thing, yeah. Doing it for a while, they were hard to get. Now you're not cool unless you have a weaponized umbrella. They saw them at the gas station. <laughs> I don't know if they saw them at the gas station. I was gonna say, that's an interesting gas station you're going to, <laughs> dude. Well, like, see, I'm out in the suburbs and, and out here, like, they have signs like, We sell live worms at a gas station. And anybody who like comes up from the city is like, What the f- why the fuck are there live worms at the gas stations? But that, yep, we've got them. Frisbee golf, too. Little frisbees for the for the stone. They sell that shit at fucking gas stations. Yeah, well, there's a couple frisbee golf courses around here, so if you're at one that's within like five miles, it's mandatory. That's really you're weird. Off sticks. Yep. Nell's a regular country mouse. Livius <laughs> 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 <sighs> is actually talking to us on a payphone down the street from his house right now. That's right. <laughs> I am. Um. So one more character we should probably uh, introduce as he's come up already and will probably come up as we delve deeper into. We're probably going to have to have a spoiler um, part of this episode, too, where if you're looking to read it and don't want to spoil it, you may have to tune out. Um, But uh, Jack, Jack, who is a a paramedic and from my understanding, really kind of a wannabe detective (laughs) more than he wants to be a paramedic. Yeah, that was I was taking a big shit on the private eye genre yeah so he's um he's a paramedic who always wants to be the first you know the the first responder at one point he he lives in england um because they get to ride motorcycles. is this all true yes very yep they do paramedics drive motorcycles in england so that they can get there faster which is pretty genius I, i think but probably makes transporting people back to the hospital a little more tedious right that's for the third and fourth responders (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, he um, also is very quirky, much like Larry that we talked about. He has some some quirks. <laughs> and, and some of my favorite scenes in this book are conversations or things that happen between him and his partner Rick, mostly in the ambulance, but while they're out on uh, on the job. Um, Jack's mindset is something that I've been thinking a lot about because. Um, it's like, imagine someone who's fucking crazy, but, like, he can't let shit go as well. Um, and, and and just has these weird theories. Like, I was driving home from work the other day, and uh, there was a car behind me that had a headlight out. But the other headlight was, like, a lot brighter. And in my mind, I was thinking, um, it's almost like the car's compensating for, like, you know how, like, a body, when, like, right. you go blind, you get you get better hearing? Like, the car was compensating for losing one headlight by making the other one brighter. And I was like, that's fucking something that Jack would think. But then he would talk about it for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, Jack Jack was supposed to... I mistakenly thought that a reader would be on fully on board with all of Jack's ideas in the first, <laughs> the first draft. And um, I found out while when I was writing it with... Uh, when it was a script form, you guys knew that it was originally mm-hmm. spunk water. It was a screenplay right. just about the paramedics. And um, my uh, my writing partner, uh, 
I, I just kind of lost her because what I thought was Jack was doing that was reasonable was not reasonable. <laughs> and it also is very indicative of my mindset when I started that screenplay 10, maybe 15 years ago. Because that's a young man's kind of bullshit <laughs> as far as rescues and obsessions with, you know, getting to the scene first. And he could he could get there fast enough so that it wouldn't even have happened. And those, those kinds of things. That's the kind of bullshit that a, a young guy would be obsessed with, especially obsessed with, you know, uh, being a savior for women or his girl, a girlfriend or something. And that's the, so when I revisited it, when it started to become a book, uh, I just amped his ass up because he, it's so easy for him to, to be um, an object of ridicule, which is what he always should have been. And it's that earnestness of making him think, me thinking 15 years ago that he was the hero is why it's, I think it lines up perfectly with mocking him now. Um, this fits perfectly with a quote that I have highlighted, and uh, I'm not really going to explain this, but this is someone else's opinion on some of his ideas. Think about it, asshole. What's more likely, that you're a one-time, time-traveling vigilante, quite possibly the least effective of all time, or that, and I'm not going to go into because it gets a little spoilery from there, but that's someone's opinion of some of his ideas. Yeah. I mean, he... Poor Jack is stuck in a kind of a confusing situation. I, 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 I kind of go back and forth on he had good intentions. The thing that sells the Jack character is that it's the earnestness. Like, there's never a moment in the book. Well, there's all right. So there's a there's seldom a moment in in the in the whole book where Jack isn't just fully trying to do a good or the right thing. Um, he's just so crazy and misguided about it. So that's the funny part, and but like the thing that makes him a uh, uh, like a likable character is like the earnestness. Like he really wants to get to the bottom of this mystery. He's just really awful at it, but he's right. And, and I think it's this. This might get me in trouble, but his the initial thing that starts this problem. Um, I don't think it's very spoilery to talk about that because it's it happens pretty soon or pretty early on. When he's a paramedic, and to cover up that assault in the back of the ambulance, and his idea, you know, that goes with his personality, which is, I can, I want to get there so quick that it didn't even happen. So he thinks, if she doesn't know that she was raped after this car wreck, then she doesn't need to know. And that's sort of a, that's sort of a noble thing to think. But of course, <laughs> the repercussions of somebody being raped they certainly deserve to know but in his stupid mind you know it's i can make this go away i finally have the power to make this not have happened and i think that that's a very intoxicating idea and i would be lying if i said that the first incarnation of this character that i thought that was a great idea (laughs) but now that I'm older, I realize that's a terrible idea. So let's talk about that for a minute. I told Rob there was one thing I was thinking about asking, and I wasn't really sure which way to go. First of all, I love that, that Jack thinks that. I mean, I think it makes him a great character, and, and I think that it's 
that type of thinking is the catalyst for why I really enjoyed a lot of what he did. Like we know he's nuts and we know he takes things too far and, you know, but he's really likable in that he's too dumb to know any better kind of way. Um, yeah. And the, the fact that somebody doesn't know how easily you'd implicate yourself. Mm-hmm. Yep. The moment you did that, that shows his disconnect. So let's take it a step farther. And, and, and again, I don't know how spoilery this is or isn't, but, the character that you were talking about who who he's trying to cover this rape up for eventually has some, I don't know, pretty interesting ideas about the concept of rape. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. I, I had, I actually <laughs> thought it was very interesting, but, and this has come up on the show and maybe not so much on the show, but around the show lately um, quite a bit with the current, uh, current, views on rape and feminism and and whatever like, the opposite of feminism is livius acts like the views on rape have changed <laughs> well no but there seems to be a lot more of a push towards you know rape. No, I, I know exactly i know exactly what you're talking about because that that section um is it was very controversial during the editing process it was very controversial with uh my wife who was beta reading this book and Initially, when uh, I talked about it with Osborne, the idea was that um, at the time he was he was on a crusade to eliminate that kind of shit from his crime books, and I, I totally see where he's coming from. I mean, it was crime books for a while here in the, in the last five years were essentially rape fests. I mean, that was the quickest way to make the reader angry. You know, or the the writer to think that they now here's something they can avenge, and that's of course objectifying those care the women characters as just these uh, just an incentive for the man to be a badass or something. And I can see exactly why they're disgusting. So to justify having and it has to be in this book because it's the book is making fun of that. You know, it's making fun of the idea that women need rescued. Now when she has a situation that normally you'd think um i don't know i i hesitate to say a lot about her character because her the way she ended up is based on the input of a lot of people um who were not men who could <laughs> conceive who could conceive of a character who is frustrated with the idea that rape is the worst thing that could happen to them that they find that, that a woman would find that offensive. And uh, her speech about that was was one of the most contentious parts of the book. It, it, got, it was cut down and it came across in a way that um, was unfortunately timely because that discussion, like Livia said, is going on right now. And I was never worried about being on the wrong side of something because I could give a fuck, but I didn't, I wanted... <laughs> I wanted her to, That's going at the front be, of the episode. <laughs> I wanted her to be clear. I wanted her to be the person, the character in this book that looks at all the men and laughs at what they're doing. And I hope that that's how it comes across. Not that it's justifying anything terrible, but it's, she's basically saying, you guys are a joke to me. Even the worst, what you consider the worst thing to happen to me, um, I laugh at you, and she comes out on on top because of it. I, 
and that's going to be it's a controversial part of the book it was it's uh and it was tough to it was tough to sell to the co-creators of the book so I, i'm glad you brought it up because no one's brought it up yet and i'm essentially waiting for the shoe to drop when people start to discover it <laughs> i thought it was really refreshing oh now, boy <laughs> I, I, well i mean versus, the versus reading the same things that you know that that like you had said that the rape tropes have become very you know they all kind of seem exactly the same it's always a point of vengeance or it's always the defeated woman because she was raped so i thought you know, I go, oh, this is kind of different. This is kind of nice to read it this way. You know what I mean? To see a different a different view on it. Yeah, my concern was, you know, that the, the people start coming out of the woodwork and going, well, you know, he's saying that, you know, uh, getting raped is just like getting a finger cut off. Well, you know what? I don't need all my fingers or something, you know, along those lines. And that it was a, a bold move, but I, I appreciated it as a, as a reader. Now, That's I'm not always the most is. sensible person in the world either, so I'm not really sure how the rest of and that's why uh, it's it was up to a woman to say it. I mean, and if you follow, like, here's the thing: that there's going to be people that they're going to get to a part and they're going to be like, "Oh, I can't believe he did this." But if you follow the book through to the end, of all the characters that make it, um, everybody else beside her is kind of deflated in comparison, in a way. At least that's how I feel about it. Yeah, she she deserved to know what had happened to her, and. Um, she uh she's kind of above their bullshit yep and she gets the good speeches man i think she gets some good speeches for sure yeah I, yeah of all the characters that come out in the end she's the one that that kind of is the above above the rest of them yeah so but there's going to be people that just like they're looking for bullshit they're looking for an argument so there might be a little bit of argument in there but i think you did it the right way and livia's of course he'll applaud anything that has to do with a controversial topic so Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it, it feels. It it probably some people are going to mistake it for me baiting people into that conversation or trying to be edgy, but um, like you said, if if you look at it from a distance and if you look at the what's swirling around the female characters, um, I have confidence that any sane person will see it for what it is, and of course, it passes the Bechdel test. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that scores any points, um, and it should because it's not a hard thing to do. The fact that it's so difficult for modern fiction, movies or books or whatever, to have two women talk to each other about something besides men is fucking ridiculous that that can't happen naturally in the course of anything. And I didn't even do it on purpose. I'm, and I, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I didn't even... When all this bachelor test talk was coming up, I went back and thought, I, I guarantee that that's happened in this book. And it did, because there are female characters. And why would they just be talking about men? It's, it's just kind of, a, it's kind of a gross problem right now. Livius, you know what he's talking about? No, 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 nothing. There's a comic from the, um, I think it was in the 80s, where two uh, two characters are the comic was called Dykes to Watch Out For, and it was about a lesbian-owned bookstore. And two two of the characters, two of the lesbian characters, are going to see a movie, and they say, "Hey, you want to go see a movie?" And she says, um, "No, I don't go to see movies these days unless they can pass my test." And my test is, are there more than is there more than one woman 
and do they talk to each other? And number three, do they talk to each other about something besides men? And it seems like a pretty easy test to pass, but apparently it's not. What I loved about that comic is one character said um, uh, the last movie she saw that passed it was Alien, and she was very excited. <laughs> and I thought immediately, yeah, sweet, because it does. Of course it does. That's the gist of it. So the, it's come back up lately where people started to apply that test, those three questions, to some of the most famous movies and realized there aren't, the, they'll not, they don't even pass at the basic level, that there aren't two women who talk to each other. Isn't that amazing? They don't even get past step one. Yeah. <laughs> you know what the disheartening thing about this? And, 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 but God damn it. So I think of Here all go. the the women's movies that I've seen. I, I say that in quotes, so romantic comedies. And, a lot and, of them and, don't pass because they're well, not the, the, the problem is the people who make those movies the millions and millions of dollars and continue to, to allow them to be made are women. Yeah, well, hmm. it, would, it would level of women making them. You mean the... Are you talking like a... Like no, I mean that the women are the ones that go see it. So I, I'm sure that none oh, of us can... has gone to see a romantic comedy if we didn't have a woman with us, right? And it was probably their suggestion that we go see this movie or rent this movie or watch this movie. Everyone is everyone is perpetuating this problem. Right. So that's it's, my, uh, my issue is... Fact you know, I just, I, I'm enjoying the fact that, it's, that it was exposed that, say, movies like Titanic or something that, that people thought were this, these awesome, empowering movies are kind of full of shit on a, level, on a basic human level mm-hmm. where women don't have conversations with each other. All right, yeah, I mean, you're right. I don't think I did see that movie. And, uh, yeah, there isn't, there isn't a second woman. I mean, there's women running around drowning and shit, but <laughs> there are no they're, other they're female not talking characters other, other than, than what's her name, that chick from the movies. All right, I'm going to blow your fucking mind. I've talked to that, uh, Allison, um, how do you say last name? Beck, Bechtel? Bechtel? Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, her com- That comic, Dykes to Watch Out For, was syndicated in a newspaper I worked for. I worked uh, There's a gay newspaper in Chicago that I worked for for about two years. And it was syndicated in that newspaper, so I, would, I was the um, I was one of the people that worked on um, on uh, pay, like payroll for for contributors and stuff. So I've talked to her on the phone and stuff before, and oh, awesome. we've talked about stuff besides men. <laughs> so you so basically you passed the Bechtel test. Yes, literally on the phone with the actual person who created the test. Because so we, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because that was a situation where two ladies were talking. <laughs> Hold on a second. I can't get past the part. I, I was, the newspaper, was the newspaper gay or was it just gay content in a regular newspaper? It's a, a newspaper, newspaper 100% I, con, uh, dedicated to gay content. I got, I got You said gay newspaper, and the first thing I thought was newspapers can't be gay. Newspapers don't have sexual preferences. <sighs> <laughs> That was There's the, always a part of a show where Rob sighs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just always really happy when that was the sigh of relief that my I won't have the worst joke of the, of the episode. <laughs> so, There's still time, man. There's still time. <laughs> so we got the rape topic done. Glad that we were the first one to to, to tackle the the tricky rape issue. A little tricky, but it's it has to be there. All right, so in the interest of continuity, um, all these people that we talked about all somehow come together, sort of, throughout this book. 
That's it. Yeah. That's all I've got for plot. And the and the location sort of comes together. Did you yes. guys catch? Did you guys figure out where it took place? It took I place that nowhere. I, I'm actually kind of proud of the solution to that to that issue because I there were so many places where I wanted it to take place and I wanted the features of those places to be in it. And um, the when the edits were coming back, Osborne's like. Uh, yeah, you got a character who's hanging out in Pennsylvania, and he turns a corner, and he's in Florida. I don't know what we're gonna do here. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I said, we'll just go through and find places where maybe I messed up. And he's like, all right, I'll find them. And it came back with like a list of fifty to sixty times where I had people start one place and end up in another state, and that was. <laughs> and I kept thinking, how can I fix that? And he and Osborne's like, let's just make the whole thing take place in one place pick pick one of the states how about ohio and i was like it doesn't feel like an ohio book to me and he's like pick you know anywhere else and i'm like ah, it doesn't feel like a florida book <laughs> so then i just had a fucking brainstorm which is that it's happening in all of them and every instance where i mentioned a state or a town that just became a street name and it might be one of the best ideas oh ever. yeah so it's, now it's on Ohio Street. Now it's on Florida Avenue. Now it's on Pennsylvania Street. And um, all these streets have the qualities of their state. And that's not, um, that's not something that hasn't been done before either. If you read John Cheever, his, uh, his short story, The Swimmer, was originally a novel, and he cut it down to just a short story. And in the process, um, the, uh, the novel spanned many seasons so the short story then spans many seasons, but it all takes place in one day. So while this character's... Have you guys ever read The Swimmer? No. It's about... A, this, listen to this idea. It's such a great idea. A guy decides, just for the hell of it, that he wants to swim in everybody's pools in their backyards, um, and this is how he'll get home. He's, he thinks about, you know, there's a pool in all these backyards and all these streets that's kind of on my way home. So I'm going to call it the whatever river, I forget the name, he names a river after himself or something. And then he goes pool by pool to get home. Um, and in the meantime, you start to discover that everyone in town hates him, that he owes money to everybody, that he's an alcoholic, that his family has left him. And because there's all these high society parties going on in these backyards and he gets colder and colder as he goes. And at one point he has to cross a highway and it seems like it's fall. And then later it seems like it's winter. And it's a really great story because you think, wow, it, it really felt like uh, the seasons had changed. And when they asked the author about it, Cheever's like, yeah, it used to be a book. I cut it down. So it's, it's amazing that that, what seems like uh, um, always was the intent, was an accident due to um, necessity. And hopefully people won't hear why it doesn't take place in all these places. <laughs> if they don't listen to this podcast, and maybe they'll think that that was on purpose because of intent and not because of necessity. That makes any sense. Does that make any sense? Well, that raises another question. Um, I really, I like that solution. It's, it's elegant. Um, and it never felt like the, the, the setting of any one place was like incongruous. So like it fit together well. So I, I think that's a really cool solution. I don't know if I, I don't know if, I, and I guess from your perspective, it was a bunch of different places that you made one place, but for me, it was always just one place. So um, I think you succeeded. Um, what about time? 
<laughs> and he dropped something because he can't explain this one. <laughs> Time is an entirely different element in this book, and it's even like uh, addressed head on once or twice mm-hmm. that time, um, especially when it comes to um, creative materials. Like I think music was right. it music? Um, yeah, there's... it's music and movies. Yeah. It's media objects are untethered. Yes. Right. So the that so yeah. So which sounds like a big cop out. It sounds like a big rationalization. Oh, uh, here we go. To put, in, to put in any reference I want. <laughs> I but have it's a quote. Really well, that's so what ahead. I. That's exactly what I thought it was. I thought it was as you wanting to to get to have your cake and eat it too. But there's you're... some of that too. There's some of that. <laughs> Music, movies, and books followed you forward and back. Time was broken when it came to media objects. Occasionally, time could break when it came to music, but it would always be broken when it when it came to movies. Yeah, and it, um, and it's there's an incident at a radio station that has made that has made music being transmitted forward and back. Right? There's uh, that that part is explained. The movie stuff, um, I kind of wrote myself into a hole because I had a couple times when I thought it would be interesting if move that the movies that I wanted to reference were predicted. If I could somehow make it take place in the 80s, but they were still predicted. Um, so whenever there's a movie talked about, it's a weird prequel, or whenever there's a, um, or there's you know 10 sequels later, but they've come around, they've wrapped around the earth somehow. Saw 30-something or whatever. Right. Which, <laughs> yeah, and, and it was... Uh, but when I started doing it, then to keep it up was rough because then I had to keep it going. Like it couldn't just be because the only movies that are in context are, I think, the thing in E.T. Are, are coming out the summer that the book takes place. So there's not a whole lot of movies and music that interested me in 1982. But I, I wanted to keep those balls in the air and just keep do, playing that game with the references and that got hard. Like, some of sometimes it worked great. Like with Eddie Money, the fact that Eddie <laughs> yeah. Money did want to be a in real life, he was a police officer. So to have an alternate timeline where he's still a police officer, but that also gives you an excuse for somebody to be singing a song before it came out or after. I forget. But for that kind of for a media object to be attached to a person to make them unstuck, you know, to use the to use the Vonnegut term. Um, that stuff worked great. Like I would, I would get excited and say, "Oh, this will be fun because um, yeah, I can make fun of Eddie Money at the same time." And uh, and then the meatloaf stuff was a blast. And the Captain Beefheart. What if they're the same guy? What if one's a practical joke persona? All that stuff. <laughs> they're both. All that stuff based. worked. But then when there, when uh, in a a reference was um, was necessary to a conversation, they got a little uh, they got a little trickier. And um, some of them work better than others, but it was a game I, I had committed myself to, <laughs> and had to keep doing, even long after it maybe made its point. And some people might get frustrated with it, like, okay, we get it. <laughs> some of them are really <laughs> offhanded, though. There's one um, uh, in the ambulance. Haven't you ever played Grand Theft Auto on the Atari 2600? The physics <laughs> of the fire truck brick and ambulance block are solid. The cop cube is jacked, though. Yeah, that, that's one of the trickier ones that probably should have been left out. But I, just, I couldn't resist it because there's a there's an ambulance game in Grand Theft Auto, and there is 
an early version of Grand Theft Auto that's pretty in the, for the PlayStation. Uh, there was another reason for that to me. Isn't somebody playing it at a, at a party? I forget. Um, the reason, maybe, <laughs> maybe the original reasons aren't even in the book anymore. But they, uh, I like a, I like an alternate timeline where Grand Theft Auto existed on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. There was a two-dimensional version. I don't know if that's what you're talking about on the PlayStation, but I remember playing a computer version that I actually thought was more fun than when the kind of you know first-person, whatever you want to call them, three-dimensional ones came out. So, yeah, it's... Um, it does lend itself to a thought that that I had occasionally through some of the trickier time parts in the book that that maybe this book not only doesn't take place anywhere specific, but that it's almost a super, like the time is almost supernatural, like a supernatural element. And Jack makes reference to it a couple times about just writing time travel machine on something and, and having it work that way. Yeah. And it, and there's a moment, um, not to get too spoilery where it literally is, you literally discover that it's broken, that, mm-hmm. that, uh, they travel through, um, some sort of, well, the movie screen, and it's uh, not the last action hero it up, but that um, that sort of uh, lets the cat out of the bag. If time is busted, it is now. I have a quote that I think might be a little bit uh, fourth wallish, or not. Maybe a little revealing your hand, or I could just be completely confused, which is com- is absolutely. Uh, Possibility. Uh, Jack remembers once he had to explain to a classmate how crucial it can be to rationalize the necessity for a blatant continuity error in his student film. This explanation would come five years before his film was made, but no one in the class would get the joke. Fuck him, he decides. Most continuity errors were as important as the voiceover narration, meaning no one should hear it or even want to. Which was part of the know. voiceover narration, I think. I don't even remember writing that line. That must be a future. <laughs> The future or past version of me that wrote that. <laughs> that the fact that I don't remember it leads me to believe that it was recent. <laughs> so that was that was one of those sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been an eleventh hour edition that I put in there because I do not remember writing. It. All right, that's so cool. Fourth wall stuff is is always great, at least when it's done well. And there, I think there are a couple more instances. One of the ones I I really liked was. Um, hmm. Billy and Bully are kind of talking, and, and it seems like she's in a little bit of a mood, and they're they're talking about you know, this cop and, and following the cop. And at one point, she says, "It's like someone's writing about us, but they're being kind of lazy." It's <laughs> <laughs> fucking great. <clears throat> Absolutely good. wonderful stuff. There's also, and I didn't bring it up earlier because I couldn't find the exact quote because apparently I'd highlighted the line under it. I found it since, but. Um, you were talking about uh, him dreaming and having the dream about the the red rubber ball inside the the, the rib cage. Right. Um, <laughs> you actually say in here, uh, and of course across the page. So it says, um, uh, "Dreams are by far the strangest things human beings experienced on a daily basis. Just as they had no business in good fiction, they had no business in conversations with her." <laughs> which I'm a big, big believer that they have no place in good fiction, but I also thought that it was funny that you point that out. Oh, yeah. Have you ever had somebody tell you about their dream like I did earlier? Didn't you just, couldn't you, you couldn't wait for it to be over, right? I mean, nobody wants to hear about your dream. That's what, nobody understands that. Nobody wants to hear that shit. 
Which is ridiculous because they're getting ready to tell you that their brain thought that they went to the fucking moon or something. But you're, you just think to yourself, oh, just, I hope this is over soon. I don't want to hear <clears throat> the closest thing to a supernatural occurrence in our lives. I don't want to hear it. It's because I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I don't think I brought this up on the podcast. It's because dreams are fucking fan fiction about your friends told to you by your friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's I was not think, a bad description. I was thinking about this. Actually, I think that that quote, because I quote, I, I highlighted that specifically for Livius. Now, I'm very sensitive to dreams in books because Livius is so against them. I was thinking about, I work with a lot of people who are in their early 20s, and um, there's a phenomenon with people who are in their early 20s that when you're in your early 20s, you don't realize, is that you think that your life and experiences are f- like phenomenal when in reality they're experiences so you're telling these f- like oh haha f- funny thing that happened at a party and it's really like it's a thing that happened at a party but because it's the only experience you have it's like the best experience and when you're right. listening to people tell you these things it's like fucking i just can't care about this but they don't have that perspective and i feel like that's kind of the same thing with like the dreams and stuff mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad it's consistent. I, I always, I hope that people hated hearing about dreams as much as I do. So I'm glad to hear this. Because you, you have to, you, you got to be into it when somebody's, they're so excited to tell you about it, but I don't, they can't understand that no one wants to hear it. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I'm with you. I tolerate it more than Livius just because, like, I, I'm not such a curmudgeon. But um, uh, they're yeah, typically That's dreams. Why I always hope whenever you always see that trope in science fiction where somebody has some supernatural ability, where or like the dead zone where they daydream what how you're gonna die or whatever. And I just hope I want to see someone do a version of that where somebody's like, you know, I had a dream about you last night, and they're like, oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> They do have a supernatural ability, but no one will listen to them because nobody wants to hear about your dreams, even if it is predicting the future. It's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like it. I have a question. Furbies came up an ungodly amount of the time. <laughs> like, there's no, there's, there's no good fucking reason. There's, is there an incident that you felt you had to get back at, at these toys? I don't know why the Furbies are in there. Um, there's not there's Furbies and there's Furby knockoffs. Well, right? the Furby, yeah, the the, the blur, Blurbies. Blurbies. There's Furbies and Blurbies. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I had a Furby once. That's about. <laughs> See, I think that's the problem. You only had one, and I think that's where the hatred comes in. With one Furby, what the fuck do you do with one Furby? I think it was like. I don't know if I was to if I was to try to explain it. Maybe there's it's a it's a mechanical version of a pet, and there's the pet subplot. It's sort of a nightmarish future for animals. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's something, something something like that's the if it, if time is unstuck, there's the there's the animal future is are these mechanical animals, and that's why they're they have more of a role than they, they probably should have in any reasonable book <laughs> so larry is um one of the things that's going so he's the porn director and he is trying to shoot a, a movie um based on some um real occurrences uh and he 
he's the scene where he's trying to recreate the scene with, with a Furby. And um, all the actors he has in this movie are, are people from the porn movies that are moonlighting, doing a real, quotes, real movie with him. So as he's talking about this scene, and he's setting it up about this is what's going to happen. And we have this knockoff Furby and here's what you're going to do. The, the woman, the, the porn actress that's playing a woman responds with, I fucking hate those things. Terrifying. I'll put a dick in my ass, but I will not feed a Furby with my finger. <laughs> Did you ever feed a Furby with your finger? No. I haven't done yes. that or the other thing, so I've never had to make the choice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a. It might be a tough choice. Yeah. It sounds terrifying. <laughs> this little plastic beak, and you push its little tongue, and it goes, nang, 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 and sort of suckles on your finger. It's, it's so scary. That's creepy. They're creepy. I got the, I mean, like, and there was, like, that built-in Uncanny Valley kind of feeling from them because, like, they tried, I mean, like, there was such a, a animatronic element to something that they were trying to make look a little bit realistic and be a little interactive, and there there was, it was just, there was no value from the beginning. I never got the Furby thing. Yeah, yeah, they're, and they'd get scared if you turn them upside down. they go, worried! <laughs> Which your instinct when you'd hear that would be to just spike it to the ground because it's fucking scary. <laughs> and the only way to make them stop, sometimes they go on this sort of rant, is to take the batteries out. But they didn't make that easy. You had to use a screwdriver to yeah, get the batteries out. Screwdriver, yep. Yeah. I remember there, that. There we go. Fucking blurred these. <laughs> so we've, we've been talking about the book over an hour now. And... Um, I, I know I have a bunch of quotes that I want to go to, so are we, how do we feel about 92 to go. Yeah, I've got about <laughs> 92 left. Probably not going to get all, all 92 out, but there are a handful that I'm scrolling through and I definitely want to use, that I definitely want to make mention of. So what do you think? How do, we, how do we feel about what we've said about the book, the story? No, I'm, I'm glad that it sounds like you guys followed the plot. I'm excited that it seemed, uh, I didn't know how incoherent it would be. I was a little worried at the preliminary communication about about tonight i think that one of the things i enjoyed about this book was the fact that it kind of kept me off balance a little bit so this this <laughs> i'm gonna equate it to, to two, two different movies that i have seen um texas chainsaw massacre which i realize a lot then there are people who haven't seen it but when i talk about horror movies i talk about texas chainsaw massacre having a great effect even though it's probably very dated you have to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the volume turned up just a little bit too loud. Because part of the enjoyment of that movie is that it really gets inside your head and it keeps you off balance because it's so loud and noisy. Yeah, not so there, much. Hmm? Am I remembering it wrong? Is I, I, I remember there not being a score. Is that true? There was. Yeah, there was, it's, it's a lot of screaming and a lot of chainsaws. And if you listen yeah. to it where it's just like that, you want to turn it down just a hair. It, by the end of the movie, you're really frazzled, and that's the effect of a great horror movie, right? Is that you get frazzled. I recently um, watched The Babadook, which is an Australian horror film that has a very similar effect. There's a kid in it who's uh, has some behavioral issues, and you're you're following the single mom, and it winds up being about a, a monster out of a a children's book kind of thing. But, you know, halfway into the movie, I was like, God, I just feel so uncomfortable. And I realized that it's this, I'm feeling what the mother's feeling. This kid is behavioral issues and he's yelling all the time and, he, and he's acting out and you're frazzled. And it puts you just in the right mood for when they start to finally kind of reveal the creature. 
that, that you're already kind of off kilter. And that's how I felt a little bit about this book is that there were so many crazy things going on. And it was a little bit stream of consciousness, I think, on, on the author's part. We'll talk about you in third person for a minute. Um, that I think that that was one of the endearing qualities was that it kind of kept you off balance. Sure. Thanks, Rob, for backing me up on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's a tough. It was tough to glue to glue sections together. It's um, there's a balance that's that's tough to get, or a rhythm that's tough to get going when you have that many people, that many characters doing stuff at the same time. So I would never know when to cut away and to cut back and to try to give the illusion of it being sort of seamless as you're reading. Like, it feels like this is a good time to see what's going on over here and let's mm-hmm. see what's going on over here and let's see what's going on earlier in the timeline and later in the timeline. And um, a good example of that in a movie, have you guys seen Birdman? Uh, not yet. Oh, that's that new one, right? With, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, With Batman. Uh, it, Keaton. Yep. It's um, Mike it's David's the first cousin. example. Of, yeah, my cousin Mike. The first example I've seen of uh, of a seamless movie. It they're they've given it the illusion for the entire time, and you don't notice it maybe for the first fifteen minutes, and then you start to think, "Holy shit, they're going to do this the whole time." There are no edits in that movie. It it all takes place in a couple days, but there are no edits. It if the time's going to pass. The camera will look up at the sky and watch the sun go down and come back up. If um, the camera swoops in and out of doorways and follows people around, and it never leaves very far from Michael Keaton. Sometimes it it uh, it travels around to peripheral characters, but when it, when it does, it it physically moves to follow them and then moves back. And that's a that's going to change movies forever now because. They have the technology to make a seamless movie, uh, make a movie appear to be seamless. So all those stunt moments, like Children of Men, everybody talked about the the long scene without any edits. You guys remember the oh on the fuck road? man, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and the and the ending with the um, the big action scene at the end. There's no edits, and they're celebrated for that because it's really hard to time everybody doing the right thing for 15 minutes or whatever. Actually, those were probably only nine or ten minutes, but now you don't have to. Now you don't have to try to do it anymore. The technology's there that the illusion of the camera never cutting away can be done. Um, <clears throat> movie Hard Hard Boiled had that True Detective. That's, I was going to say that's the one I'm familiar with. Yeah, the fourth episode. Mm-hmm. How hard would that have been to do? That would have been really hard to mm, time right. that yep. shit. And you can see them trying to fix mistakes in it. Like, there's a moment when the guy would have ran very far away and he has to kind of hang around and run in place for a second because mm-hmm. that shit's hard. You don't have to worry about it anymore because apparently technology is caught up with it. But my whole point is that even though you have the illusion of a seamless movie, it doesn't have the effect you think it would have, which would be... Um, well, I don't know what, what you might think the effect would be. What do you think would happen if you saw a movie that didn't seem to cut away ever? It would be a little nerve-wracking. And it is. Yeah, that's, it's, that's, yeah. it's very nerve-wracking. It's like watching a play that never ends. It's um, It has a very erratic score on purpose, and it gets exactly the effect it wants, which is it stresses you out. I thought, mistakenly, that it, if they ever mastered that technology, they tried to do it with rope years ago, Hitchcock's rope, and they tried to do it with Panic Room with the C- CGI camera moving through walls and shit. That didn't work. 
Rope was thought, the one where they would just like zoom in on the back of the guy's jacket to cut yep. scenes, right? Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And um, I thought when if it ever happened that it would be this, uh, there would be so much momentum to the movie was my was my uh, my hope. But it's there's not it doesn't it's it's sort of it freezes you in the theater and you're stuck. It feels like time isn't moving and it really really frazzles your brain. Um, I hope more movies try to do it, but uh, I guess the the point is, I try to kind of do that with the book to frazzle you to mm-hmm. keep it to keep ha- hanging on scenes for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like the get the, when the kid jumps off the ramp on the bike and he's hanging in the air for a hundred pages. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. <laughs> I was to say towards the end of the book, it seemed like the scenes were longer. Uh, I get so immersed in them that I would almost forget there's another story, you know. So that definitely was in my mind though, where I was like, "Dude, when we cut like, because if, if the way the book is structured, it's it's I don't know if you want to call them chapters or sections, but it, it, they're long. They're forty, fifty pages at a time, and um, you're sitting through it thinking, "Man, when we when we finally get back to you know, Billy, evil, whatever you want to call him, um." Yeah, he's he's still he. I hope he's still in mid. Like he, I think he's going to be in midair. But you know, <laughs> what's going? on? <laughs> so yeah, it, it it was a little bit like, uh, yeah, that was that was a unique approach. <laughs> well, I'd seen you guys saw Inception. Have you seen yes. Inception? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the van when it goes off the bridge? Yep. Mm-hmm. When I saw that in the theater, you know, in the in Inception, they're all dreaming within a dream. But so the van. Um, to their perception, it's going to take uh, hours for it to hit the water. Um, so they keep cutting back to it, moving just a couple feet at a time, heading towards the water. And I thought that was amazing, but every time that happened in the theater, they would show all the action going on and all the anti-gravity fighting and people on skis, you know, sh- shootouts. And they'd cut back to the van and it just moved just a little bit more. And people in the theater would go, ugh. It was making them mad. <laughs> And uh, I asked Amy about it later, and she said, I, I was so mad every time they showed that van because it reminded me that the movie was fucking with me. Or it, they, they took it personally. But you should have heard it every time. It would just cut back and, ah, uh, the whole crowd. And so I thought, well, that's something that didn't work, so I want to do that. <laughs> I think that in book form that um, it might be either more excruciating or maybe it would work. I don't know. So that's what I did with the kid in midair. Um, it takes him about the equivalent amount of time to, to land. Like about 100 pages, I think. It's it's kind of the, the big climax. But it, I wanted to stretch it out as long as I could. <laughs> but ironically, it's having a weird effect. One reviewer I was reading, he thought that uh, it ended abruptly. And I was talking to Osborne about it, and we're like, ended abruptly? It's there's like a hundred page climax and then like <laughs> s- uh, twelve hypothetical epilogues. <laughs> what, what, what does he mean ended abruptly? But then we started to think that that actually makes sense that someone might think that because if you extend your climax for a hundred pages, people might just assume, they might start to get lulled in the idea that the book is that, and then there needs to be an ending upon, on top of the ending. So to have, a, if you stretch a climax out too long, maybe it'll trick people into thinking 
um, that it's no longer a climax or something. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. In a book that has a lot of porn in it, I'm surprised you didn't approach <laughs> that in a in a metaphorical way. Um, but yes, I know, I know, I know what you're meaning, and 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 I kind of felt that way while talking specifically about what happens at the end of that jump. Like you're saying, that jump goes on for hundreds and hundreds of pages, but then the the result of the landing is over in a paragraph. So, yeah, I think that somebody might expect another twist or another layer, and it's you know, I I, I just wanted to enjoy the ending as long as possible, and. And I wanted to get them to the ending as quick as possible, so they're at the drive-in pretty quick, and that's all—that's where they're going to stay. So, I—I I just wonder if expectations are going to be um, off because it should feel like they should go some something else should happen after that. But um, I don't know. That might be just one person's impression, and uh, I might be overthinking it. But it might—that might be the effect of stretching something out like that. Yeah, I have an observation that, that is a different topic, but um, this kind of occurred to me that, I mean, you kind of have a history, especially with your writing, but um, with your personality, especially with your personality, um, about your approach to authority figures. And in the book, there's a ton of them. There's a whole lot of them, and there's a lot of characters in general, and um, we see things um, kind of from the perspective of a lot of characters, but cops are always spoken of in the third person. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're kind of two-dimensional. And <laughs> I'm I assuming even that was intentional, right? You just don't want to yeah. get into the mindset? You like to kind of examine them from a distance? Yeah, they're... The, the contempt for them <laughs> in the universe of the book extends to the universe of the author. <laughs> so that's why they're they're numbered. The na- the one that's named, his name is ever shifting. Yep. Because it's um, I just didn't want to. I didn't think he deserved a name. So <laughs> his name. They're just constantly making fun of his name. The other ones have names that are jokes, and the other four are what big cop, small cop. Big cop, small cop. Yep. And uh, little cop and tall cop or whatever. Uh. Yeah, they're just um, they're like you know they're the they're this other they're these other they're the creatures wandering through the book. They're necessary, and um, they're given the respect they deserve. (laughs) (laughs) This does take me into one of the um, one of my favorite parts of the book, and I I don't think I could read this in any way that makes sense. But uh, the police are investigating a, a, a a murder. And they come to a, a woman who is the girlfriend of the murdered man. <laughs> and um, they're looking at this list that she has of men that she slept with. And at one point, she kind of makes a little mark underneath one of them, which I believe was the, um, the, the, the stopping point before she was with her current boyfriend. And um, there's this conversation, how they take that mark to actually mean that it was a guy named Mark and they're demanding to know who Mark was and it just kind of goes on and on but honestly <laughs> that's my perception of the police is exactly that scene that's some that's some Abbott and Costello shit 
But uh, no, seriously, that's I do some, think the cops on first shit. zero in on one particular thing that they think might be the case. And it doesn't matter how relevant it is to the case at all or to, to their investigation, but that that's it. That's what they're taking home. And, and in my few run-ins with the police, that's how I've always felt they went. Yeah. <laughs> and they have, everybody gets a doppelganger in the book. And their doppelgangers are, are of course, the, the shitty paramedics. Mm-hmm. Mike the, and Mike. Mike, the other the two mics that end up in animal control. Um, so they're, yeah, they're, um, they're reincarnations or their whatever versions are uh, just a more streamlined version of their idiocy, basically. There, there's a lot of consistencies between the, the two shitty paramedics that end up, <laughs> they're so bad at it that they're just scraping up roadkill as their, their job and, um, that's just, again, that's a glimpse into the future of law enforcement. The two mics. <laughs> there it is. Had to talk about our disdain for authority at some point during this book. So much packed into it. Yeah. They get some good, uh, they get, they get some good um, uh, punishments. They go out, they go out swinging a little bit. I guess far as uh, a definitive end to their arc. <laughs> Officer Bash, is it? Your last name sounds like the noise it makes when I punch your mother in the twat. <laughs> <laughs> Read the whole quote. There's another like line or two there. Officer Bash turned white and then he muttered, my mother is dead. Without missing a beat, Big Rick smiled, explained, I meant when she was alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. I don't remember that either. That was a good line. I had that. I had that. <laughs> All right, I got a couple quotes that I want to do. Are we good? Are we good with going into quotes? I think we're good. Would Would you like me to start? I have a fairly long yeah, one. Go for it. Now I don't know, and and David, I know that you worked. Um, I don't know on the on the outskirts of the porn industry for a while, so I don't know if there's any truth to this particular rule. When he was shooting pornography, there was a well-known rule in the business regarding the number of teenagers you should have in any one particular scene. The rule was never, never two kids together. Four was the magic number for adults, but only one teenager per scene, and that was it. Some directors even insisted on a one-teenager limit per film. Mostly this was because two teenagers couldn't fuck with any degree of certainty, and for Larry, it was sort of like watching paraplegics play basketball, meaning they were probably still better at the game than any civilian, but he'd still be rooting for them. And all, but someone out there on the court needed their sea legs to keep things professional. Yeah, it's um, yeah, that's not a rule that I've ever heard of. Okay, <laughs> but it, it makes it a certain true. amount of sense, and it's yeah. goddamn funny. It's a, that's an extension of because the the porn world in that book is that's the doppelganger of the actual film world of Hollywood. So they ha- they're just they have this sorry small version of everything that's happening in Hollywood, and that's just going. A, a, there's a conversation about how children shouldn't be in films at all that there's uh, there's some sort of rant about there should never be children and they have no business being in films they don't have any business being in any other adult occupation why would you have them in movies so that was the porn version of that nice I didn't catch that but yeah I like that okay this quote I have might tie into what you've, how you're disdain for people telling you about dreams 
Uh, you done in the shower? Yep, pity though. I get all my best ideas in there. Guess what I decided to do? Shut up. Everyone always says that, Jack size. And if that were the case, why is it that all I ever come up with in the, sh- in the shower is trying to turn my dick into a wristwatch? <laughs> I read that. I was reading it at like 2 a.m. and I was laughing so loud that for a minute I was worried that I would wake up my neighbors. <laughs> I like this one from a from a true to life um, experience. Electronic voices set off my cats. Ah, very true. We've been on the receiving end of that numerous times. Yeah, yep. Furbies too. My cats hated Furbies. This I just thought this. There's some. You must have like I don't know if like it was subconsciously, but you put a lot of thought into some of this porn stuff, dude. Um, <laughs> The ultimate paradox of the 69 is that when one end works harder, the other end can't help but be distracted. Unlike Shakespeare's beast with two backs, if the couple is doing it right, the two ends of the beast swing up and down as unevenly as the scales of justice. Yeah, that's uh, it's from captioned porn, man. I, I, stared, I stared at it a long time. There's some real fucking solid insight into there. There's some really good stuff in there. Maybe I thought about it too much. I'm going to um, edit... A couple lines I was just going to be able to make more sense being read this way, but it's a porn actress and who's kind of just annoying a guy who's trying to get something done, and she wants to play truth or dare. So, ask me truth or dare, she pouted. Truth or dare. Dare, naked girl said, smiling, expecting something sexual. Piss in your hand until it's full, then drink it. <laughs> naked girl smile dropped. Larry's too. If he had, if, if he had a script, he would have rifled through it. Do it for me? What the fuck is wrong with you? She shouted, walking into the room. It just goes on, but it's just fucking awesome. Piss into your that, hand. Let's fold and drink it. <laughs> that's kind of a true story. That's you found some <laughs> slice of truth there. When I uh, when I lived in Toledo, my roommate um, at the time, Jerry, was uh, uh, he was he used to play the stupid game. Do you guys remember uh, Civilization, that computer game? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how long ago it was. It was when Civilization was out. So he had, um, he just sit there and play it all night. And it, and it was he wasn't even any good at it. Like, like he had joke names for everything. His town was called Scrotum Falls, and uh, he would sit there, and um, with his back to the door, and there was this girl who would hang around me and Jerry. Uh, her name was Suzanne, I believe. And she was always trying to hook up with Jerry. So she would come to the door in, uh, in a towel, and he, would <laughs> and he would just look at her in the reflection of his computer screen and just not ever turn around or give her the attention that she really wanted. And there was a situation, a truth or dare situation, um, where she kept trying to lead it in a sexual way, and he just kept giving this litany of, horrors for her to do <laughs> just uh and it was it was just cracking me up because it that's the that's the way um that's the way truth or dare would normally go if somebody didn't want to play it um dares should be disgusting and um any anytime you try to oversex a situation it is usually awkward and horrible only in the movies does that you know get the blue light and the Doves fly through the billowing curtains, and in real life, it's just like, Ugh. yeah, the person needs to be shut punished up. in real life. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> so, anyway, that that all the truth or dare stuff was um, is essentially true. I'm probably a little beyond my truth or dare playing age, 
But I got to tell you, if I ever play it again, <laughs> piss into your hand till it's full, then drink it. That's coming up. And I'm going to be the only one that's really fucking amused, but I will be super amused. Yeah, that, that is, as harsh as that is, there's, there was just something just ice cold about glancing up and seeing somebody half naked or naked in the doorway in the reflection of the screen and then going back to your stupid video game. It's just so, just, I don't know. That that always just cracked me up. That, and then she just kind of wandered away like, oh, I feel stupid. Everybody feels stupid, except for me, who thought it was hilarious. He stored it away for later. Those little things, do you just keep them in your mind, or do you, like, write them down for later? <laughs> well, that one, I think that had happened... And it was originally in the Spunkwater script when it was called Spunkwater. So that had happened recently when I first wrote it. So that'll give you an idea when it first was, I started writing this. <laughs> Civilization was out. The game Civilization. <laughs> Holy shit. Which was, I don't know, what year was that? Fucking a long time ago. You're not looking for an actual answer, are you? I All can right, hardly is typing this it. Keyboard. No, it's not me. <laughs> I'm gonna I read just typed it. I typed it in. It's uh, 1991. Holy God! That was when the script was first starting to be birthed. As a freshman in high school, <laughs> you had no idea what was going on. Nothing. I, I, I thought my I thought my stories were were interesting, and I was telling people my dreams probably back then. <laughs> um, I got a quote. Larry fired back at Bigby, who dove for the covered slide in fear. A shirtless, spiky-haired kid trailing popcorn and blood ran between them, and Larry saw what he mistook for tattoos of dog bites along the boy's ribs. What kind of idiot gets a dog bite tattoo, he thought, taking aim. Here, let me draw some bullet holes on you, too. I thought that was really well written. We should maybe talk about Larry's... Um, is there is there an actual condition that causes you to imagine tattoos everywhere? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, he's he's definitely got it. He's uh, he. Do you guys think it was an anti-tattoo book? Out of curiosity. Um, I just think that I took it as like something that someone probably didn't think too much about until it just kept like invading his daily life until the point that it like kind of something snapped in him that's kind of how I read it so I didn't think that it was like overall anti-tattoo but there was definitely like some crit like a, a critic a critical theme toward tattoos for sure like a cynicism to it yeah the original tattoo talk was that the first reading in Chicago was it was a rant about them that um kind of uh flavored the rest of the book i guess mm -hmm. so it, it does kind of feel like uh to me it feels like that character is kind of disgusted with them um but i don't know how that came across uh if there's an affliction where people imagine seeing tattoos everywhere that would be really interesting um that would be interesting. talking about tattoos one of my favorite quotes of the entire fucking book just because of how lame or not lame but how ridiculous it is there was even a tattoo of tattoo on the shoulder of a tattoo of Ricardo Montalban. It made sense if you saw it. It's the last visible dog, dude. <laughs> oh, there you go. There's your reference. <laughs> I have a quote that's really spoilery, but it was one of my favorite things. Uh, 
Uh, Is it the, the giver an giver an uppercut? Because I really <laughs> like that a lot. No, I had that one highlighted, but no, that wasn't it. <laughs> Rob's like, quit trying to make uppercut happen. <laughs> I was gonna just let uppercut go. I, I I looked at it and I'm like, should I? No, I'm gonna get this go. But no, it, it made it in. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is um almost at the end of the book. Without me, you're not even here. He screams. Not just somewhere else. You and your daughter are not even alive. Jackie, no, please, you're half me. And she's three-quarters me. One more generation and the child will be all mine. Check the math. Yeah, how did I miss that? That was some genius shit right there. Sorry, I don't know how I don't have that highlighted. Is that the, that was the bad guy talking? Yes. But essentially, my friend Rachel said that you would be attracted to every generation that you had created or something. Which kind of has a twisted kind of logic to it. Yeah. Um, but I, I obsessed over that, and it wasn't enough to keep her on the project. <laughs> <laughs> it was just one quick quote at the end. But at least she's like somewhat attributed to it now. Yeah, no, she she just was frustrated with the, the process, I think, of trying to write a screenplay. With you. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I was paying the ass. We've spoken on previous uh, uh, podcast about you faxing in like a four million page screenplay to somebody. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that was my first encounter with a with a producer, a movie producer, was when they said, uh, "Yeah, it's still coming out of our printer. Have you ever written a script before? <laughs> How many pages do you think a script should be?" Yeah, <laughs> uh, all of them. <laughs> Um, I think we're good to cut the quotes of that. Actually, I got one more. Um, You're like this book, man. You just keep going. Fucking, I know, right? I just, I, <laughs> this one, um, I'll, I'll read it first. When he hit, Evil's front wheel caught the last cop who had still been working the traffic jam uh, square in the face, plowing his whistle through four incisors, but even worse, breaking his neck and killing him. If not instantly, then very soon after that. Not many people would go through the first part of the description before getting to the fact that the guy died, and I appreciated that. Is that what they call burying the lead? That was a little burying the lead, yeah. <laughs> that is not the reverse pyramid. That's a <laughs> journalism reference. I'm not really sure that this whole episode hasn't been a wrap-up for uh, for this book, so I don't know, Rob, do you want to take a minute and <laughs> some, of, some of your thoughts? All right. The last 20 minutes have been the van falling into the water. <laughs> uh, all right. So it's tough to talk um, about such a sprawling book with so much going on. Uh, but suffice to say, uh, David makes a great point. We have been um, experiencing parts of this book in print and through actually the podcast itself for actually literally years now. And and so it does make the experience of reading it a little bit different than possibly someone else. Uh, that being said, there's a lot of information that goes into it. Um, there's a lot of just a lot of stuff to read through, and um, it can get a little bit confusing at times. But overall, it's so fucking entertaining that um, I would recommend reading this book to anyone, and even if you're you feel like you know you got a little you couldn't follow everything, or you got a little confused or frustrated. The book is such an entertainment value that. Um, it's it's completely worth the ride. Um, it seems like, based on our conversation with David, we pretty much got the gist of it, so I, I believe that most people will, too. 
Um, so if that's a concern based on the conversation we've had, don't worry about it. Just read the book because it's really good. I'm going to go five stars. Five dogs. Five. Rob tried to come up. He's like, do we give the stars? I was like, we give every book stars. He's like, maybe we give it tattoos. Tattoos was the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Five tattoos. (laughs) As more tattoos just keep showing up. So, um, yeah, sprawling is is a good way to put it. And I think that, and I don't know, and and it's kind of hard because he's sitting on the call with us. David sometimes gets the feeling that talking to him is a lot like reading this book. Like it's a little all over the place, <laughs> um, but always, always really entertaining. So yes, um, I, I think we got the gist of it. Um, I think that even when I wasn't really sure that I got the gist of it, I don't think I cared because the interactions in the little vignette scenes and the interactions between the characters were still super fucking entertaining. Um, yeah, I've, I've liked God, I, I can't think of one thing that, that David's written that I haven't really liked. And, and this is no exception. This is kind of like a nice homage to a lot of the things that I've heard and um, read from him because it's kind of, uh, as we talked before through the podcast and through reading some of his other shorts and stuff that have appeared in various places, um, I, I knew some of this. Um, but it was still fun to read a second and or third or fourth time in some cases. So I, I really enjoyed the hell out of it, even if I wasn't really sure that I got it. I'm, I'm at five stars, too. Woohoo! David, do you want to rate your own book? Well, I just I uh, what was I going to say about it? Um, I feel like I shouldn't be here for the for the rating part of it, but since I did hear it, I I, I think I'm going to agree with you guys, and I think that it I think that even if it's confusing, hopefully it'll have re rereadability that it will deliver some of this stuff um, with subsequent reads, if that makes any sense. So the confusion is not, um, you shouldn't worry about it if you're confused at first because there's a lot There's a lot going on there and it's designed for discovery. Um, like we were talking earlier about the chapter headings, how they, if you look close, they become their own story, they become sentences. That's the kind of stuff that people might not notice. I know a few people haven't noticed it. Um, that lead to other things that are to be discovered later. Um, so anyway, yeah, confusion. Don't worry about the confusion. It's uh, it's all part of the process or something. Is that, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I shouldn't. I think you just I quoted shouldn't. Imogen Heap on accident. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I had actually told Rob earlier that I don't know when I would ever have the time with the podcast to do it again, but I would love to reread this because I feel that a second reading would be very rewarding. And David's uh, David's wrap up there came dangerously close to the Chuck Palahniuk. If you don't like it now, you might like it later. Um, If you don't like it now, it's because there's something wrong with you. Yeah. (laughs) Which is that's the biggest bullshit. I can't. I mean, every time that comes up, statement does does it. Who said that? He did the, that burnt tongues anthology that came out that he co he co edited with um, uh, Richard Thomas and Dennis Woodman. Oh, I haven't I haven't heard enough about that. I know, right? Um, <laughs> I know sparse sparse coverage of that, but his introduction basically said like, um, if you don't if you read this and there's a story you don't like, you know, read it again in maybe five years, and I'm I'm sure you'll love it. 
or or something like that. And I was like, that is the biggest fucking bullshit cop out that anybody has ever <laughs> written. Ever. It's insane. He he approached it a little differently and said that at different points in your life you appreciate things differently. I mean, let's, yeah, let's be fucking honest. That's what he but meant. That's, yeah, that is what it boiled down to. Yeah, I would say, I don't, yeah, I certainly don't mean it like that. Unless, <laughs> the only way I would mean it like that is if you could, um, no, I don't mean it like that. There's, if you read, if you read Burnt Tongues you and you don't like it, reread Last Projector. If somebody enjoyed it, that that seems to suggest that people might enjoy it in the wrong way or something, unless they had maturity. Is that what he's saying? Or, Basically, kind of, in a way, I think. He gave some examples of stories where he felt that way, like something he read when he was really young and then he recently revisited and had a kind of whole new take on... Yeah, yeah, I don't mean... That's not what I meant at all. What All I was saying was that, like, if you watch a really busy film that's got a lot of shit in the corners... You'll notice things in the background, things that in, in the sense level stuff that are there to to be discovered later. Because hopefully there's enough momentum that you don't have time to dissect it. Um, that it's moving quick enough for you to actually just enjoy the experience of it. But uh, yeah, the the confusion is kind of inherent in the in the in the thing. You know, that's what I meant. I didn't say wait till you wait till you take a class on it and then you'll, you'll get it. <laughs> I was just fucking what David's trying to say is if you don't like it now, buy another copy a year from now and try it again. It'll probably change by then. Anyway. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> buy the here. You buy the ebook off of Amazon and then you always get the updates for free. That's the secret. It'll actually look a little different because the the first run had a little it was a little darker. It looked like it got washed with somebody's red socks, and now the I guess the once they print enough of them out, some they started to look a little more normal. So um, you'll actually you'll get it what it was supposed to look like if you order it now. <laughs> Genius yeah. marketing over Broken River there. I love that. Um, you know, earlier we were talking uh, quite a bit about doppelgangers, and uh, I don't know, David, if you're all caught up on booked episodes, but Rob has his own doppelganger in oh, yeah. Vermont. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but he actually uh, sent in a little a little piece for uh, for the podcast. Okay, is that what we're going to go to right now? Yep. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend like I can hear it. <laughs> need something of Rob's? There's no need to run. Just go on down to Vermont Rob's. Hi, I'm Vermont Rob, and here at Vermont Rob's Rab Olson Emporium, our motto is: If Rab Olson owned it, so can you. We've got bourbon. We've got Apple laptops. We've got 18 different books by author Stephen Graham Jones. Need a toothbrush? We've got that. Lovingly inscribed with the letters R-O. Need an official I am a co-host of the booked podcast t-shirt? We've got that. One size fits. Extra large and below. We even have this nondescript FedEx box. What's inside? Let's find out. Can't really see. Smells kind Ashes. Who puts all the ashes in a FedEx box? Need something of Rob's. There's no need to rob. Just go on down to Vermont Rob's. 
conveniently located in a white painter's van, creeping up and down the I-89. Oh man, fuck, that really means that there's actually people in Vermont who have, like, there's a person in Vermont that stole my identity. This is fucking creepy. Yeah, but think of all the cool discounted shit people can buy, like our old Rob MacBook Air. <laughs> For cheap, I'm sure. You know, I was did I don't know if you saw this on Facebook, but I was going down into my basement for the first time or exploring it for the first <laughs> time because Amy's out of town. We have a squatter down there. This is kind of similar to your identity theft. There's apparently a squatter down there because there was a two by four holding the door shut. So I was trying to open it and I couldn't open it, so I'd go around to the other side of the building. And then I, there was a piece of wood underneath the doorknob, like, to keep someone from coming in. So I started to look in all the corners, and um, I found a bunch of people's fucking mail. This Whoever it is, Jesus. had been ta- taking mail from people that lived here. And it was, uh, there were like three birthday cards for one of my neighbors. So they probably thought there was money in the cards, maybe. Oh, Jesus. And a stack of, uh, stack of receipts for peanuts, $2 peanut bags. And a lot of little plastic bags that were carefully folded and put into a, um, a mailer. And just all sorts of evidence that someone has been living down there for at least the, all the birthday cards. Um, and this other mail was from about four months ago. So I don't know. I don't know if they're down there right now. But there's somebody got in there and was living down there. And we had suspected it because we saw the light was on down there once. And we made a joke about it, but nobody went down. We're in a pretty big building, but it's an old building. It's cut into um, into uh, like eight apartments, one, two, three, four, five, six apartments. Um, but yeah, it's an old, old building with these old stalls to store stuff. And there's a lot of room for vagrants, apparently. But anyway, how creepy is that? Someone had a stack of mail down in the basement. <laughs> and peanuts. Hey, maybe Man, the... he just he just out creeped your story altogether. I gotta tell you. Well, just just because of the logistics of it, that this <laughs> the person's probably below me right now. <laughs> <laughs> you should may... take your laptop into the basement and see if we can talk to them about the last projector for a couple minutes. I should. Well, Amy's in China, and she made me promise that I would not go back down there <laughs> by myself because I told her about it yesterday, and I took all the guy's stuff and put it into an envelope, and now it's up here in the closet. Like I've got all his shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was convinced that it would be evidence. There was one of them was like a an alligator comb. It was a comb shaped like an alligator, and I thought this is, these are all clues. So I've got all this stuff. Um, In three minutes, know. none of this happened. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you go so, back down there, you have to bring a birthday cake and be like, "Look, I'm sorry. I know it's a few months late." Yeah. Well, I, she knows that. Um, that I saw this stuff, but she is unaware that I took it all back up into our apartment. So that'll be her surprise when she gets home. That I, have. <laughs> oh. I have all this vagrant stuff. I have all those peanut receipts. Or <laughs> Amy. Yeah, we were also talking about the show about how difficult it must be to live with you. <laughs> that came up a little bit too. Well, this stuff is, it, I don't know. It's, it got me thinking about, um, like Rob said about the headlights, you know, there's a lot of interesting things that. A lot of interesting uh, things to obsess over. Like, what if I had been mailed something and somebody came looking for it 
and you know, I denied that I ever got it, but it was down in the basement. The vagrant had somehow saved my life or something. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> and oh, that's man. why you're going to want to pick up another copy of The Last Projector <laughs> in, uh, sometime in January. That's right. Because <laughs> I'll be dead. And no, because this story. will be part of it. There will be a weird <laughs> vagrant in the basement story added in there. What if the vagrant takes over David's life and writes more for The Last Projector? That would bring everything full circle. Well, this is this is also kind of creepy, and you're probably not going to believe it. So when we get off this uh, interview, I'll take a picture of the mailing label. Among the mail, I was disappointed that none of it was addressed to me. Um, it was just a couple neighbors. However, there was a magazine with a mailing label on it that said, David Janes. And I'm not kidding. So... Hmm. What is going on there? Is that just a huge coincidence? I'm gonna, I'll take a picture of it to show it to you. That was amongst the male, uh, the vagrant stuff. So well, what it's if only that's, fitting that you stole but, stuff from him now. But no, what if that that particular address was not Kentucky? It was not this area. That's a magazine he must have brought with him. Oh, what if that's the shit. what if that's the guy's name? That's my doppelganger. This is this is gonna go a <laughs> little my, bit. That's my doppelganger. Doppelganger. This is going to go a little bit into um, inside jokes or whatever, but and I think we've mentioned this before, but it is that um, uh, we frequently off the air refer to Amy as Amy James Keaton. <laughs> and this past week's 2020, there was uh, the, the subject of the murder, or maybe it was one of those unsolved, like it's one of those like 2020 unsolved mystery. It's like an hour long investigation. And you always know who it's not, even though if they're a suspect because they're interviewing them, like in their house, so you know it's not them. But the the subject of the murder was an Amy Janes, and every time I heard it, I'd just in my head hear Keaton afterwards. So creepy. Amy Janes, that's the fucking Janes. vagrant's wife. Yeah, and that well, that's when he said David Janes. I was like, why does that sound so? And I'm like, oh my god, because I spent an hour thinking I was hearing Amy Janes, or hearing Amy Janes just the other day. Weird. Oh, amongst the vagrant stuff is a um, slip cover or the dust jacket to a book called Men and Apes about, uh, you know, like the, the basis of humanity's evil or whatever. It's said by the author of uh, Men and Snakes. <laughs> so he must, this author must compare men to, you know, whatever creature. But uh, it was burnt. Like somebody had burnt the book, and that was all that was left. So that's also in my bag of clues. I'll take a picture of that for you, too. That's crazy. That's awesome. Damn it. You have a better story than me. Now we have to go get creeped out again. (laughs) That's a a one-upman contest we probably should not play. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I'll let you win this. You win this round. All right, David. Now that we have uh, we have put the last projector to bed, finally after two and a half years, um, well, when, <laughs> when's when's the next when's the next Keaton project uh, heading our way? Uh, book book wise, um, Pig Iron is the next book. That'll be my official sophomore slump. <laughs> you guys said you've liked everything I've written so far. Mm-hmm. Wait till you get a load of this one. <laughs> the, stre- the streak will end. <laughs> So Burnt Bridge Books, they have um, David Oppegaard's and the Hills Have Opened Up and uh, Jason Stewart's 16 Tons. Um, 
And Tony McMillan did the artwork. He's the you guys liked uh, Nefarious Twit a lot. Loved it. Loved it. He's uh, he did a really good cover. Um, he has that that kind of creepy uh, Shel uh, Silverstein twisty kind of stuff. Um, came out really good, and I like their their pulpy. Burnt Bridge has a cool uh, vibe with their books, like little fake stickers on them and stuff. Right. Right. So it's a fun one. Um, short story-wise, uh, Trouble in the Heartlands coming out. That's the Bruce Springsteen fiction. Oh, that's the one that uh, Joe Clifford's editing, right? Yeah. It's got a D Dennis Lehane story in it. That's its big claim to fame. Yeah, it's about it. Oh, uh, the Big Adios just came out. It has an excerpt of Pig Iron if you want to see what Pig Iron is going to be like. First chapter's in there. So that's that's it for me. I've stopped sending stories out so much. I just I just one or two here and there. I I did stop the carpet bombing. <laughs> Not a big fan of that submission strategy. The carpet bombing. I probably won't write many short stories next year either. I think I got them out of my system. Just done with it. Kind of. Do you have another novel in mind? I do. I'm working on one right now calling it gorse that's the working title but it's uh it's first person um definitely more autobiographical <laughs> more autobiographical i feel like it everything is. i read is just you <laughs> this one is is the first person and it's definitely more autobiographical so it's going to be if you, if you thought you were sick of me now this one is uh <laughs> this one's this is an attached first-person narrator. Um, it deals with... Well, I don't want to tell you what it deals with because somebody will steal it and make a shitty movie out of it before I get done. <laughs> I've often wondered when you're going to collect your Facebook posts and comments into a collection. <laughs> That's one of yeah. my favorite things about uh, of knowing you, David, is that when you post something on Facebook, I can rely on the fact that the first person to comment on your post is also you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel the same way David posted something about a week ago and I was going to comment and I was like no because I'll be the first commenter I'll wait I'll wait two minutes and sure enough it's a scientific fact like you have to be the first person to comment on your post yeah Amy said that makes me look unhinged I should, <laughs> I should not do it she said see like those are the type of people that I want to hang out with <laughs> She needs that, to hear that. That's a problem with me, then. <laughs> All right. Uh, what else we got, Livius? Well, yeah, we actually have some stuff about us. It's not always all about David James Keaton. Although, David, you're you're welcome to join us um, in just a few short weeks. I'll try to get up there, definitely. Yeah. Um, recently got reached out. Kent Gowran reached out to me. Uh, Kent Gowran, friend of the podcast, uh, to, let us, to let us know that uh, Jake Hinkson was putting together finally after so much time a chicago um chapter of noir at the bar and the uh hopefully inaugural of a, of, a, of an ongoing series of noir at the bars will be taking place december 9th don't have a time yet but um it's going to be at a, a bar called quenchers and uh we're going to be there we're, we're trying to get the word out about it as quickly as possible and obviously we'll have more information <laughs> to come um noir at the bar uh who are the readers there's ken Gowrin. Uh, Jake's going to be reading Jake Hinkson. 
Frank Wheeler Jr., Kevin Lynn Helmick, and Sam Reeves. That's right. And um, so that's... Can we be honest about what happened? Kevin was like, <laughs> hey, this guy's doing noir at the bar. And we were like, how can we get ourselves involved in that somehow? That's really what happened. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. So in, in the in the talks with Jake, um, uh, it, it evolved from him launching a new noir at the bar to uh, actually we're probably going to be doing some of the hosting duties for it because... Uh, um, well, aren't you guys almost officially the Chicago um, wing of noir at the bar anyway? Well, I mean... We, we, we've never thought of it that way. <laughs> I've always, here's here's how it goes down. I've I've been badgering Livius to start a Chicago chapter in or at the bar, and he's always said no, no, no. We want to do book stuff, um, and so it's nice that someone else did it so that we don't have to do all the work, um, but we can still participate. So it's almost kind of better this way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So looking forward to that. We're actually we're absolutely going to podcast it as episodes on the podcast. We might actually do a live stream or put up video on YouTube as well. So um, hopefully everybody can make it down. I already talked to Tim Hennessy from Crime Spree Magazine. He's coming down from Milwaukee to to join us for that as well. So hoping to get a big crowd out because Chicago's got a lot of good crime writers and like a good scene. So it would be a great place to have noir at the bar. Well said, sir. The second city. So next up on the podcast, I believe we had to do a little rescheduling, but... um, Fred Venturini, again, another novel we've been looking forward to for quite some time. Um, the Heart Does Not Grow Back should be our next episode on book. That's right. And I want to say, in his bio, at the front of the book, it says, Fred Venturini's short fiction has been published in the book anthology and some other stuff, but that's all I care about. Yep. So. Ron, have you guys read that book? In its other incarnation? No, he actually told us not to because there was going to be a new version. Not not to, but he was like, listen, I've got a whole reworked version coming out of this. So we were like, oh, you know what? We'll just wait. Oh, wait, this yes. is Samaritan? Yes. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he told me the same thing, but I think I think he admitted that the Samaritan might be longer. Because I asked him, I think I said, well, which one has more stuff? And he said, the first version but he said the second version is reworked and better. Yeah, so, I think he really gutted it, too. I think he said, like, 30% survived or something like that. Yeah. So I don't I don't know which one I want to read, actually. Yeah. Either way, looking forward to it. We, uh, we had his book, his, sorry, we had his story, Pound of Flesh, start off the book anthology, and it was such a wonderful idea because I can't tell you how many people started that book and messaged me and said, oh, my God. So I think that was definitely a good choice. Yeah. It was a good, uh, it was it was a good punch statement. right in the gut. It's very much looking forward to that. We'll also be reviewing Dodgeball by Bradley Sands. and Dodgeball and High. Dodgeball High, I'm sorry. <laughs> I keep thinking Another about his great. Twitter, his Twitter, which is just dodgeball, <laughs> dodgeball, dodgeball now, um, which is awesome, by the way, and a great way to market that. Uh, That's book. another great cover, too. I love the Heart Will Not Grow Back cover um, and the dodgeball cover. Those are both awesome. And, Rob, I, I thought about this and, of course, scheduling, you know, being what it is. But, you know, we have David on. We're planning on having Fred on. Um, we're playing having Bradley Sands on, which is one of the reasons we rescheduled because Bizarro Khan is probably going to um, keep that from happening. And I think after that, we're having Amanda and Jesse back on. Like, it's yeah. not just me and you anymore, buddy. There's a, 
Always room for more in this fucked up family, I guess. So yeah, there's a lot going on. We got so we got we have our next four or five books planned out. There's a lot of good stuff. Um, great guests. Bradley Sands finally coming on. We've been talking to him. We reviewed his books in the past, and uh, it's far past due for having him on the podcast as well. You know what else is far past due? What? Us ending this podcast. <laughs> I still have to spend a couple hours editing this tonight, so yeah. Dude, I, a couple? You've you. got two and a half hours of audio to work with, I think. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, but that's not all we have tonight. You have a couple more minutes of. This is a short one, but um, uh, we're going to end out the episode with a, a new installment of Booked News. So we're going to sign it off, but stick around because you'll hear Skip Papersley soon after that. David, thanks a ton again for giving up, I don't know, six hours of your time or whatever it is to, to do this with us. We really appreciate it, and it's always great having you on. Thanks for having me on again, guys. That's right. Say hey to David Janes for us. Oh, spooky. I'm going to get a picture of that uh, label for you. <laughs> All right. Until the last, that's the last thing I'll ever do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, hopefully that's not the case. Until next time, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. This is Book News. I'm Skip Habersley. Now for the news. A 70-year-old Steinbeck story has resurfaced and is going to be published for the first time this week. The story, With Your Wings, was originally read on a radio program in 1944 by Orson Welles, but for some reason was never published. Book News has not received a review copy at the time of broadcast, but we're guessing that With Your Wings is probably about working-class Americans with strange speech patterns struggling against greed and consumerism. In other news, creator of beloved comic Kelvin and Hobbes, Bill Waterston, recently penned a new strip for the Angelim International Comic Festival in France. We were able to connect with the normally elusive Waterston to ask him why he avoids the press. He said, I was just tired of everyone asking me what it was like to be the assistant DA on Law & Order. Now for the New York Times bestsellers and fiction recap. Leaving the list at number five is Leaving Time by Jody Picoult. The number four spot is Steamy with Clive and Dirk Kessler's Havana Storm. Rising from the dead at number three is Prince Lestat by Anne Rice. Patrick Rothfuss is making noise at number two with slow regard for silent things. And finally, John Grisham's book, which is not about accidentally finding child pornography, Grey Mountain, is number one. This has been Book News. I'm Skip Papersley, signing off.